0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushtuni Narrated by Shelby Luke
1: Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction. By Russus John Rushdunning. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Chalcedon report number 41, January 1969 The Death of God movement is one of the deepest and most powerful forces in the modern world. The mistake most people make in trying to understand it is that they only see its most obvious manifestation in men like Altizer. But the Death of God movement is everywhere and it is extremely powerful in conservative and evangelical circles. This point is important, very important. Let us examine it briefly, but carefully. If a man professes to be a Christian and yet is guilty of sexual offenses against God's law, he is in effect saying, by his persistent contempt of the law, that for him, God is dead in the area of sexual morality. He is denying, to all practical intent, that God and His law govern the sphere of sexual activity, and he must therefore be classified, whatever his religious profession, as a member of the God is dead school. Now the same reasoning applies to every other sphere of life. If a man professes to be a Christian and yet favors the public or state schools and sends his children to them, he is declaring that God is dead in at least the sphere of education. He is denying the sovereignty and the existence of God for educational life. No less than the sexual offender, he is saying that God is dead and can be safely disregarded in the area of education. To speak even more plainly, some who find fault with my emphasis on the free schools as against state schools and Christian education as against statist, humanistic education, tell me that we should concentrate on, quote, Realistic unquote objectives, like keeping the public schools in line or getting prayer back into the public schools, but trying to make socialistic education work for freedom, or humanistic education serve God, is like trying to make adultery a respectable part of marriage. Education is either under God, or it is under man and man's authority. The purpose of education cannot be the service of the state, public schools or the service of the church, parochial schools, but the service and glory of God. No school can serve two masters. Ultimately, it will serve the church or the state rather than God, and our public schools and church schools are steadily revealing their true nature. But to go a step further, some very devout ministers have taken exception to my emphasis on economics and the gold standard. They feel I should be, quote, preaching the gospel, unquote, instead. And, of course, I am. I am declaring the good news that God is alive and governs not only the church, but the state, school, science, economics, agriculture, art, and every other sphere. Our modern economics is the death of God economics. It denies that God exists and governs the sphere of economics by His law. The status economics of our day holds that economic truths are relative truths, that the state can determine economic policy in terms of its needs, and without reference to objective law. But, quote, conservative, unquote, or, quote, libertarian, unquote, economics has become no less relativistic. Its position is anarchistic. Since there is no truth, no absolute truth, then let a free market exist for all ideas. As a result, some prominent, quote, libertarian, unquote, economists have become strong friends of radical causes and bitter enemies of Christianity. One professor told me of his, quote, libertarian, unquote, economist colleague who regards as the great enemy of libertarianism, Christianity, because, with its authoritative and infallible Bible, its doctrine of an absolute God and his absolute truth, It denies a free marketplace for all ideas. As against all this, we must affirm that God's law is alive and operative in economics, as in every sphere. We must affirm that economic disaster looms ahead for our relativistic economics because it denies God's absolute laws. And that disaster draws daily closer. Federal Reserve statistics indicate that by November 1968, The money supply for 1968 had been increased by 23%. That spells approaching runaway inflation. But even more serious, all this new paper money pumped into the economy failed to give the demanded inflationary prosperity, and federal income via taxes was definitely lower. Now, even greater inflation is planned for 1969 and Washington, D.C. expects the paper dollar to be worth radically less. Accordingly, most certainly before Nixon takes office, President Johnson will institute large pay raises which take effect within 90 days, unless killed by Congress. Congress will see its salaries go from $30,000 a year to $50,000. The Chief Justice from $40,000 to $75,000, and associate justices from $39,000 to $65,000 and so on. These salary increases are based on anticipated inflation, so that we have here a vivid illustration of what the Capital Commission expects to happen to the dollar. If a man denies God's existence in the economic sphere and fails to prepare for the future in terms of godly economics, he will fall under the same judgment as all other prolificates and unbelievers. But to continue, a man may claim to believe in God when he is actually an atheist to all practical intent if he tries to separate religion and the state, if he denies God his sovereignty over the state. It is impossible to separate religion and state. All law is enacted morality, and all morality rests on religious foundations and is the expression of religion. Thus, every legal system and example Every state represents a religious order and is a religious institution. The state cannot be neutral to religion. It is either Christian or anti-Christian. A state may be neutral with respect to churches, in example, the particular institutional forms of Christianity, but it cannot be neutral with respect to Christianity. Today, Christianity is in the process of being disestablished as the religion of Western states and humanism is rapidly being established as the official religion of church, state, and school. The decisions of the courts increasingly have little reference to Christianity and older legislation. They are religious decisions which promulgate the faith of humanism. It is amusing and not at all surprising that some humanists, like Eric Fromm, are proposing a humanistic Vatican, To be called the, quote, national voice of the American conscience, unquote. To, quote, make technology subservient to humane ideals, unquote. Eric Fromm, The Revolution of Hope, see Chemist Hendrick, quote, Fromm proposes volunteer group to, quote, humanize technology, unquote. In the Christian Science Monitor, Saturday, December 7, 1968, page 21. In every area, all authority is in essence religious authority. The religions vary from country to country, but authority is in essence religious. When men deny the ultimate and absolute authority of God, they do so in the name of another ultimate authority, the autonomous consciousness of man. Where authority is broken, either chaos and anarchy will reign after a time, or brutal coercion will prevail. As Hilaire Dubert in his superb reports has pointed out, the tragedy of Vietnam is due to the destruction of the emperor's authority. The emperor's authority has politico-religious roots which went deep into the life of Vietnam. As Christians, we may rightly hold that a Christian theistic doctrine of authority should prevail, but we may not destroy institutions by revolutionary activity. We must create new institutions by means of new converted men. But to return to H2B reports, the weakness of South Vietnam is the inability of any of the successive governments to command authority in a situation where every man now feels with the emperor gone that he is as much an authority as the head of the state. In North Vietnam, legitimate authority has been replaced by brutal coercion and this coercion seeks to replace the old authority with a new and Marxist concept. Science, too, must be under authority, or it will make itself the authority. We should not be surprised at the article written by the British anthropologist Edmund R. Leach, quote, We scientists have the right to play God, unquote, in the Saturday Evening Post, November 16, 1968, pages 16 and 20. And why not? Leach's point is logical. A God is needed, and if God is dead, as Leach believes, then the scientists, as the new authorities, must play God and have a right to do so, if not a duty. We have no right to be surprised at this. We have so long been a part of the God is Dead movement, dead in education, in economics, in the state, in science, art, and all things else, that we should at least recognize that our chickens are coming home to roost. And when we have claimed God is dead everywhere else, should we be surprised that his death is being proclaimed in the churches? In short, Altizer and his cohorts who proclaim the God is dead theology are more logical than the conservatives and evangelicals who are shocked by this but fail to see their part in this movement. The truth is, our finest people have become sadly schizophrenic. They believe in God, and they live sober, godly, and productive lives. But they have not and do not wage war against the God is dead movement, as it takes over one domain of life after another. Outside the church and their personal lives, they have joined the death of God movement. But a man cannot serve two masters. Sooner or later, he will hate the one and serve the other. The same is true of the unbeliever who tries to cling to aspects of the Christian worldview. Mark Twain was a sad case in point. He was a professed agnostic who still retained a biblical frame of reference. For example, he saw man as a sinner, thoroughly depraved and fallen, and at this point Mark Twain was at war with his age. In 1884 he decided to satirize the already growing romantic view of the American Indian and so he started to write A Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer Among the Indians. He used some actual historical narratives as his basic story. Tom Sawyer, believing in the noble savage, the marvelous natural man, was to have his faith destroyed. The book is very amusing as it begins, as Tom spouts the liberal view of man, the noble savage as against the polluted white man. But Peggy Mills is taken captive, and Twain recorded this, and he knew what it meant. Richard Dodge had described it in a book, quote, how Indians customarily treated a recalcitrant female captive, tying her to pegs in the ground and then abusing her until not infrequently death releases her, Life Magazine says that Twain stopped writing and left the book unfinished because he, quote, was by modern standards a hopelessly prudish Victorian," unquote. Life, volume 65, number 25, December 20th, 1968, quote, "Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer among the Indians," unquote, page 504. But this is grossly unfair to Twain. The truth is the book had ceased to be funny. It was no longer a Tom Sawyer book but a grim encounter with human depravity, with fallen man. The answer was beyond laughter, beyond satire. It was a grim religious issue, and Twain dropped it. He was unwilling to push his view of man to its logical end, but he was equally unwilling to push his unbelief to its logical end. As Dr. Van Til has often written, man fights epistemological self-consciousness, man refuses to know the truth about himself and about his knowledge. When faced with the ultimate issues, he drops them and turns to trifling things. As Douglas M. Scott observed of Goethe's Faust, quote, We see a scholar who has exhausted the resources of study and burst out to experience what holds the world together, to learn the inmost secrets of creation, and what does he experience? A student brawl in a tavern and a love affair in which he plays an inglorious part, unquote. Douglas M. Scott, Goethe's Eurfrost, a translation, page 24, Woodbury, New York, Barron's Educational Series, 1958. Faust, in effect, proclaimed the death of God when he turned to Mephistopheles for power and wisdom. But the end result was that Faust became a trifler and a seducer, and he died. The real proclamation of Faust from the onset was the death of Faust, he died to the real world for the imagined world of Satan and Satan's false authority. Marlowe's Faustus, as he turned to the black arch, declared, Oh, what a world of profit and delight, of power, of honor, of omnipotence, is promised to the studious artisan. All things that move between the quiet poles shall be at my command. He dreamed of becoming, quote, a mighty god, unquote, and ended a frightened, crying man. Not God, but Faustus ended dead. And so it is today. Either we become alive to God in every sphere of life, or we become to that extent dead to Him. But, God remains alive. Chalcedon Report Number 42, February 1969 G. William Domhoff, Associate Professor of Psychology of the University of California at Santa Cruz, has written a very interesting study of Who Rules America? Prentice Hall, Incorporated, Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, 1967. The book is extensively researched. Domhoff goes to conservative sources, such as Dan Smoot, as well as to very liberal writers. But he could not be more wrong in his conclusions. Domhoff finds that, quote, "...the American upper class, unquote, controls the executive branch of the U.S. government, controls foundations, education, the CIA, most important corporations, mass media, and much more." There is a, quote, governing class, unquote, in America, he believes, and he lumps together such families as the Rockefellers, the Pews, and the Lillies, as a more or less working team in this quote, governing class. Unquote. How does he define this quote, governing class? Unquote? Here, Domhoff is a faithful scholar. He gives us his premise. A quote, governing class unquote, is a social upper class which owns a disproportionate amount of a country's wealth, receives a disproportionate amount of a country's yearly income, and contributes a disproportionate number of its members to the controlling institutions and key decision-making groups of the country. Page 5. The key word here is, quote, disproportionate, unquote. It can mean whatever we want to make it mean. If the governing class earned their income and power, is it disproportionate? If they exercise their income and power in the name of the people or as the dictatorship of the proletariat, does it cease to be disproportionate? The plain fact is that any and every society has its, quote, governing class, unquote, in Domhoff's sense. Does a group represent a conspiracy simply because they govern? There has never been a society without a, quote, governing class, unquote. Sometimes that governing class has gained power fraudulently, but all the same in every society it is there, for better or worse. Domhoff's thesis is not unlike C. Wright Mills' The Power Elite, and there are many such studies written from both the right and the left. Let us examine this idea from the perspective of an old American belief in the natural aristocracy of talent. The founders of the United States believed in an aristocracy, but not a hereditary one, but in the natural aristocracy of ability and talent. Such an aristocracy always rises to the top. The best attitude of a country should be to further its progress to the top rather than to impede it. In other words, superiority asserts itself and governs. If the moral character, if the faith of a people is defective, then the superiority which prevails is of an evil sort. But, if the character be godly, then a godly superiority prevails. This does not eliminate the fact of conspiracies. Any group of people who take counsel together to gain an end or goal are conspiring, whether for good or evil. If the times are evil, then the superior men of evil will prevail. If it be an age of sound faith and character, then superior men of righteousness will prevail. With this in mind, let us examine some of the conspiracy ideas which are commonly banded about in some circles. Some maintain that a Jewish conspiracy secretly governs the world. What they are actually saying, then, is that the Jews are the world's true elite and that a handful of them can govern the vast masses of the world. Others hold that the real conspiracy is a German one and everything is viewed in terms of a new German threat. Again, these people are declaring implicitly the superiority of Germans and their belief that only a world anti-German policy can save us from the German menace. Still others see the threat as an English one, involving the roads, funds and much more. Again, this is a confession of English superiority. But there are conspiracies, and they are a threat, some will protest, and they are right, up to a point. Let us examine one of them where court and federal records document the conspiracy, communism. In the hands of Karl Marx, a sorry, disorganized bumbler, Marxism was simply wild, confused hatred. But superior men, but evil men, took over and they made Marxism an instrument of power and superiority. Take Lenin, vicious, depraved, ruthless, all that and more, but also very intelligent, clearly superior. His writings are still amazing reading, and they explain why, in an evil age, he could ride that tide to power. For example, he saw clearly that any abandonment of gold as money and the adoption of a central banking system was nine-tenths of socialism so that the logic of economics would drive a world going off gold and into central banking into communism in time. We are busy today proving Lenin was right here and elsewhere. When Khrushchev said, we will bury you, unquote, he had in mind the inevitability of the forces at work in the free world. Get rid of every communist in the United States, sever relations with the Soviet Union, and defeat communists in Vietnam and elsewhere, and the U.S. will still go communist because of its present monetary policy, one in operation for a generation and more. The worst, quote, communism, unquote, in the U.S. is that which is written into our monetary policy, and there is no sign of a change. Am I suggesting that we stop fighting communism? Far from it. But you can't fight atom bombs with pop guns let us examine the basic issue. First, a natural aristocracy of talent always rises to the top in a society congenial to its moral bent. This is true even where a hereditary caste exists. Over the centuries, many of the nobility and royalty rose and fell in terms of their ability or inability to rule. We may sometimes regret the passing of a good line, but if it fell, it was either through inability to rule or, if they were still able, because the moral foundations of their rule were destroyed. In old Russia, the schools and universities created a generation of men whose moral foundations were anarchistic and anti-Christian. This new breed represented tremendous but evil ability, and the war enabled them to capture power. The moral foundations were at the same time destroyed in a number of countries. The difference in the time of Collapse was made by the crisis of the war and the blockade of Russia. Today, those same moral foundations are virtually gone everywhere. Second, because there will always be a governing class, and that governing class will reflect the good or evil directions and impulses dominant in society, it is important, therefore, to do two things. One, to produce and train a superior class, and two, to produce and train a vast body of people who will want the leadership that new superior class can provide. It is most certainly necessary to fight against subversion and against heresy, but something more is needed, a new faith and character in society at large, and a new leadership, a new governing class in terms of that faith and character. Today, the liberal and leftist establishments are governing classes prevail in virtually every area of the world they are powerful but they are sterile they have promised the humanistic masses they rule a paradise on earth and increasing disillusion with their promises and abilities is leading to a generation of dropouts people who believe the liberal myth but disbelieve increasingly in its leaders these revolting youths are themselves sterile They share the same myth and lack the capacity to communicate it or realize it. What needs to be done is first to bring forth a new people. This is the basic task of evangelism. Moral dry rot has not only destroyed the older Christendom, but the newer humanistic world order. There can be no new class as long as we remain tied to the forms of the old, such as statist schools. Truly, Christian schools must be established and both old and young re-educated in terms of a total faith. Every sphere of life must be viewed in terms of the whole counsel of God. Second, new leadership must be trained, a new aristocracy of talent in terms of the new humanity of Christ. This leadership must rethink every discipline in terms of biblical thought, theology, philosophy, science, economics, statecraft, or political science, law, and all things else, must be rethought and reestablished in terms of biblical premises. Remember, there will always be a governing class. Our present schools, colleges, universities, churches, and foundations are essentially geared to producing a humanistic leadership. Fight this order all you will, but as long as it shapes the minds of the leaders and the followers, it will continue to prevail. Document its evils and chronicle its corruptions all you want, and you will not change it unless, at the same time, you work to establish a new people and a new leadership. This is our purpose. Are you with us? Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only
2: Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he has us by his pain. for you. He is home.